Hello and welcome to the Roots and Foundations podcast. I'm Jeremy Manuel. And I'm Nicole Carlin. And today we'll be working on the second part of Exodus. Last week we were on the first part, which was Exodus chapters 1 through 18. And this week we'll be focused on Exodus 19 through 40. And last week, those first 19 chapters of Exodus we talked about on Sunday are the more well-known parts of Exodus. When we asked folks in the Sunday school class if they knew what happened after they got the manna in the desert, most people weren't really very sure what happens in the rest of Exodus. So that's what we're going to be focusing on today. That first part is the part we We're familiar with it from the Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments, where there's the baby in the basket on the water. There's Moses in the burning bush. There's him confronting Pharaoh. And then there are the ten plagues on Egypt, the Passover. They are going through the Red Sea. Pharaoh is destroyed by the Red Sea. They're initially led. That's when they first are being led by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And then they get out in the desert and then they say, golly, Lord, you should have just killed us in Egypt because we have nothing to eat. And that Um, is the presentation of the manna and then quail to feed them. And they're wandering in the desert. And at that point, most people kind of fade out as to what happens next. And the very last story is a story where Moses's father-in-law, Jethro, helps Moses figure out how to allocate work and delegate so that he's not overwhelmed by the needs of the people. And that gets us to chapter 19. Yeah. And chapter 19 is probably still area that people are still a little bit familiar with. They've arrived at Mount Sinai. And now Moses is going up on the on the hill to get the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments is kind of, you know, everybody knows about the Ten Commandments. There's debate even today politically on, on the Ten Commandments. So that's still an issue that and thing that people maybe don't know what all the ten are, but they know about the general idea of the Ten Commandments. So we kind of have that. And then it kind of goes part of the problem, I think, with this part of Exodus is it goes from story where it's this kind of narrative tale to yeah. where we get. Some narrative, but a lot of it is very much law and kind of abstract. Yeah. Yeah. The how to's of how to build a tabernacle and things to do when someone is personally injured, which personal injury law may be fascinating for some, but for most people is pretty dry reading. And so, yeah, people do tend to kind of hit this point in the book and kind of tune out. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, as, as, as Nicole said, when we kind of asked, like, okay, what goes on here in this second part of Exodus? Everyone's kind of like, I'm not really entirely sure. Not really sure. And what's interesting is that it this part does matter. There are pieces of narrative embedded through it uh, in the midst of the instructions and the the, the legal information and the, the inf- uh, instructions on how to treat one another, the instructions on how to build a tabernacle. And those pieces of narrative embedded in the instructions are there to sort of help us see God's character, Moses' character, and the people's character. And A lot of what we today can learn from reading the book of Exodus and much of what goes on in the Old Testament is how people are not so very different, that there is a consistency in our weakness and our vulnerabilities and the places where we tend to to fall apart under pressure. And we really see that happening with the nation of Israel because the conversation had come up, how could these people who saw God do these most amazing things, how could they doubt him? That seems kind of made up. And yet it's actually, to me, representative of human characteristic, really very honestly, that no matter what amazing things we see, the moment we become hungry or lost or tired or confused, we doubt. 
the, the doubt just floods right in, kind of like the whisper of the snake in Eve's ear back in Genesis about, did God really say that you can't have from any of these? Is God really good? Is he really going to take? It's that it's that doubt that fuels a lot of the behaviors of Israel, and I think really is a testimony to how these stories are reflective of how people do and have behaved throughout time. And I think another aspect of it, one of the interesting parts of the story of Exodus is you have Moses, he goes up on Sinai, he gets the Ten Commandments just kind of orally. He doesn't have them in stone yet. Seems to come down and tell Israel what they are. And then there's this kind of weird interplay, like whereas God wants Israel to kind of come and hear from him. But Israel, because they see God up on this mountain, thunder and fire and just kind of this awesome presence, they're like, no thanks. They say, Moses, you can go talk to God and you can talk to God and bring back what he says. That, that's, that's fine with us. We'll stay down here where it's safe. And I think that how much of that is in play, even with how we do things. It's not only just doubt, but it's, you know, we see this God who can't be controlled by our methods. And so we were afraid and we kind of just say, you know what, we're good. We, we want something that's a little bit more controllable, tangible, something that we're in control of more than something that's way beyond our our comprehension or and god does i mean the description is extremely intimidating this is not a a small event this is a, a large visual event that they're seeing and they are overwhelmed by it and they and so they ask they ask moses to be the one heading up and talking directly to god and at the beginning at the in chapter 19 moses reiterates the covenant with god and and the israelites say yes yes we're fully on board you know, we want, we, we agree to the covenant. And then they say, but Moses, you be the one to, to deal with God face to face. And then in chapter 22, we have Moses, let's see here, going on up again. Is that correct? Well, the end of 20, he's end going of 20, back. He's end going of 20, back he's up. going back up and he goes up there for a number of, of chapters till 23. And then he comes down and that's when the covenant's confirmed. Gotcha. Yeah, Moses, he goes up again for a second time and he hears more, you know, it's about some of the more case study law, you know, like, well, this happens. Well, and back in 19, in verses 7 through 8, they do confirm the covenant there okay. before Moses goes up. And then they do it, reconfirm it, they, which is really important to pay attention to how many times this idea of covenant comes up. And that's the thing that we're seeing in the Bible Project materials that they are using as a thread to help us track what's going on is that. God is, in essence, recognizing their fragility and their unfaithfulness, and yet still being willing to say, you know, this is who I am. This is what I will do. I want you to be my people. I will be your God. And each time they're like, yeah, but then when the rubber meets the road, they really struggle with that. Yeah. So Moses goes up and he's up on the mountain and then... So he comes back down, they they confirm the covenant, they and then the covenant. because of that, you know, this this covenant's all set up, and then God is going to come down off the mountain and dwell with the people. And so that's when Moses goes back up again, and this is whenever he's getting the kind of instructions for the tabernacle, which are very, very detailed and take up a lot of time and leaves us wondering what in the world's going on with this. Because it's twenty chapter 25 through 31. So, yes. and what we get a sense is that the first time Moses is up the mountain, it's not very long. The people don't lose focus. This time he's getting a lot more information. He's getting a lot more details. He's getting the stone tablets and he's up there so long that the people come up with this very clever phrase, which is as for Moses, we don't know what happened to him. 
they kind of hit this point where they're like, you know, they're checking their watches and they're saying it, it's too long. We, we are lost. It, whatever, whatever that is going on, because obviously the presence of the Lord is still visible. Maybe God just ate Moses. They, they still don't, they don't know how to judge God by God's standards. They judge God by man-made God's standards, which in, in other cultures and in history, the gods that people make up or the gods that people invented are very capricious. They're untrustworthy. They do one thing. They'll say one thing and they'll lie and they'll manipulate and control people through a whole variety of behaviors, which makes the God of Israel, the God that we worship, a very distinctive God because he doesn't do those sorts of things. The closest we get to sort of a more human picture is what's going to happen very shortly when God tells Moses while he's up on the mountain that the people have not only lost focus, they've run amok. Yeah. And so that's probably the other story, the story that's probably most well known from that second half, from that second half, besides the Ten Commandments is the story of the golden calf. Moses is up there too long. We aren't the only ones who think that the instructions are going on a little too long as we're reading it or as, as they're being told. So Israel goes to Aaron and is like, create for us gods to worship. And so Aaron, for some reason, bows down to pressure. He's kind of left in charge as one of the people in charge as Moses and Joshua go up on Mount Sinai. And he's like, okay, we'll do this. Give me the earrings from your ears and we'll make this idol. And it's the golden calf and all this kind of celebration and craziness goes on in the camp. And God lets Moses know. And God has just kind of had it. You know, he's like, they've just agreed to these things. And now they've broken the first couple commandments already. And which is really ironic because you think like God's presence is right there. God, they know God is there. They've just said how they don't want to be too close to him because it's a little scary. And yet here they are making this image while the real God is right right there. It's kind of ridiculous in some sense. And And poor Aaron. Aaron's like the babysitter who gives the kids Twinkies for dinner. Um, But mom and dad are about to show back up. And so we have this moment where... Moses is, and this is, of course, very well known from the Ten Commandments movie. Moses comes down on the mountain. He's holding the two stone tablets and he dashes them to the ground because he's so frustrated with the people for disobeying God in this way. And before Moses comes down off the mountain to do that, God and Moses have a conversation. And God is basically sort of saying, like, Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to go down there and I'm going to take care of this myself. Basically, I'm going to obliterate these people. And Moses is like, no, God, you've got to stick to your promises. Like you promised to be with these people. And some people can read that and say, well, here's a capricious God. He's changing his mind. But the idea here and how the Bible Project talks about it, which is in line with how I think about this, is that instead of this being God changing your mind, this is us seeing how pained God is by our sin, that it gives us an insight into the fact that as a God who values relationship, being rejected in this way, um, being disobeyed in this way, and the the people in essence being willing to just leave him behind in this particular way, it, it hurts God, it's painful to God, and it's costly to God to continue to work with these people. And that Moses isn't telling God stuff he doesn't know, but instead it's a conversation that gives us an insight into God and his relationship with us, that he does want to work with us. He does want to partner with us, that he's willing to listen to us and, and be in relationship with us. Yeah. And I think is that this idea of betrayal, that God's betrayed, you know, like the idea that we've had two places already in this 
second part of Exodus, you know, 19 and then in 24, where Israel's like, yes, we will follow what you're what you're saying. And then they're now turning away like this idea of betrayal. And we have an active role in it. It's not just God that's involved with it, even though he's the more faithful party. You know, that, that there is that role that we have in, in that betrayal of God's relationship is harmful to him. It's harmful to us. It, it, it's a little bit of both. So, yeah. So because of this thing, you know, Moses talks God down or they kind of work things out. And then Moses goes down, he breaks the tablets. And then he does this kind of very weird thing. He burns, burns down the golden calf, calf somehow. somehow in the powder and then puts the powder in the water. It makes all of Israel drink this golden calf dust infused water, which is just kind of weird. But, but I think, again, it's symbolic. It's the idea of yeah. this is what you think you want. Well, here, have it and have it in spades because you're you're this is this is foolish. You're being foolish. This is all it's all nonsense. This calf has no power. It's nothing. If I grind it up, what's it going to do? It's not going to do anything. So here you want your cake, you get to eat it. Here's your God. Yeah, here's your God. What do you think about that? You can ingest it. And yeah, yeah. it's weird to us because, I mean, we don't really have idols and, you know, the idea, of, but it's the idea of like this God is nothing. Yeah. And then there's this kind of weird or at least messy story afterwards like God or not God. Moses calls for anybody who's for God and for God and, and still kind of allied with God to come to him and only the Levites go to him. And so this idea that there's this kind of revolt against God who, you know, just in chapter 15 of Exodus you know, the Israelites were singing about how God is their king, about how he's powerful. And now they're in kind of full revolt against the one they've just called their king. And they've just established a relationship with as their king. Well, and it's interesting to me is I think to a certain degree why this then happens is because even after they grind, he grinds up the golden calf and, and has them drink it. He then looks at the people and it says that he looks at the people and he sees that Aaron has lost complete control over the people and they are running wild. And he realizes that even the destruction of the calf and his destruction of the tablets and his presence and God's presence visible on the mountain is not enough to get the people's attention that they're continuing to they're continuing to revel and run wild and he needs to bring this to a halt now um recognizing that as these kind of things build we're we're heading towards factions we're heading towards a uh, division of the people here if we don't get um this situation completely under control and so he, you know, makes, puts this call out to the Levites and the Levites rally to his call and they have a battle amongst the people. And you have, he tells the Levites to strap on your swords and you're going to be up against brothers and family members and, and let's get this done. And so it says that 3000 people die in that battle of that day. But sort of the idea is it kind of comes to a close at the end of chapter two after, excuse me, chapter 32, where Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin but if not, then blot me out from the book you have written. So Moses has, has, in essence, done everything he can think of. He has smashed the tablets as a visible picture of what they did. It's an it's an enactment. It's and, and we see this throughout the Bible where prophets will enact things. They will demonstrate things physically. So the smashing of the the tablets is showing the people what they've just done to the covenant that they made with God. And then he goes down and he, ha and he destroys the golden calf. And then he leads sort of an armed cleansing of the people to kind of bring things in. And then he comes to God at the end of this and says, okay, Lord, I, I kind of have done everything that I can think of at this point. If this isn't, if 
this isn't enough to be faithful, if I haven't been faithful in this, then just wipe me out because that's my goal. But the Lord, in essence, says, I, I know who sinned against me. You've done your part. And and so I'll take care of those who haven't been faithful that in at, at this point haven't been held accountable. And there's a plague that then wipes out those the re- the remaining rebels that would be the seeds of the the tearing apart of the community of the people of God. And so that gets us to chapter 33. Yeah. And chapter 33 is kind of the highlighting Moses's relationship with God, yeah. very much in contrast to the relationship that Israel is demonstrating with God. I mean, there's kind of that mess of chapter 32 of just rebellion and even God's actions, I think sometimes it's just kind of like, oh, this just seems so rough in the midst of it. Like while there is that betrayal, while there is, you know, all those things, like it's it's just kind of a big mess of a relationship. The relationship is not going well. But 33 and 34 kind of show that Moses is in contrast to the relationship that Israel is demonstrating, this idea that he's able to have this special meeting place, this tent of meeting to go with God, and and that Moses asks to see the glory of the Lord. And while the Lord's like, well, you can't see my full glory, there's still a, as much as can be given to Moses is given to Moses. And so there's this idea that that Moses and, and God are close, even though Moses is not by far not perfect, and Israel itself is very much not in that same boat. They're, they're much more uneven in their faithfulness. And and it's interesting because it says, you know, Mo- Moses says, I want to see your glory. And the Lord says, I will do the very thing you've asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And and I think that's an interesting thing, this idea that that commandment about don't take the, na- the Lord's name in vain, but God knows Moses by name. And this idea that n- knowing by name is about intimacy and trust and being able to be fully open to one another. And that God, for us as humans, it, it's almost a protection of us that God hasn't given us his full name yet because we just are so prone to kind of going astray that, you know, we want to take God seriously and not treat him like he's a vending machine, not treat him like he's a magic formula, not try to extract out of him. You know, the Israelites are more than happy to demand of God water and quail and 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 food and, and you know, different things that, you know, save us. And But when it comes to when God says, okay, but this is what I need from you because you have a job to do for me here on earth, they're, they're not willing to hold up their end of the covenant. They, they really struggle with that. And yeah. so this does really illuminate a very different kind of dynamic where Moses likes God, likes to be with him. He's not, he is both in awe of him. He fully respects God. He fully respects God's ability. He says, I've done everything I can, but if it's not enough, by all means, blot me out, which really does show a trust that I trust that you're just. I I, I think that I've been faithful, but if I haven't, then your judgment would be right. So go do what you need to do. And so here, instead of it being a kind of a darker or more frustrating moment, this is kind of a, a pleasing moment of relationship between Moses and God. And And I don't even know that it's always just on Moses is like, oh, I've done things wrong. But it's just kind of like, you know, it's this idea of kind of selfish love versus selfless love, whereas like the Israelites were, well, make us this God. You know, Moses is taking too long. We want, you know, what we want. Moses is kind of saying, 
people have committed a great sin, please forgive their sins. But if not, if you're not willing to forgive their sins, then blot me out. Like this idea that, that Moses is willing to put himself on the line instead of saying, well, I'm okay. I've been following you. You can do whatever you want with everybody. Moses is like, well, no, we, we, we need these people, even though they're a pain in the butt. Even though they complain about me, they complain about you, there's still this idea of selflessness in, in the midst of, of this relationship, this very dysfunctional relationship between Israel and God and Moses, and, and the idea that Moses really enjoys God and his presence and is wanting to further that relationship and develop that relationship is really kind of seen in, in 33 through 34, this idea of kind of them being friends. Friends, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and at least as much as possible trying to know one another. And so then the Lord has Moses remake the stone tablets. And unfortunately in all of this, I feel like Moses' relationship with God and how close Moses is to God, he starts getting to where his face is glowing, which, but it makes everybody else kind of afraid of him. So that he has to like wear a veil and be covered so that the rest of the Israelites can be more comfortable. So it's this idea that Moses is close with God, but it's kind of creating this They don't know tension. what to do with it. Yeah. People have, and, and that's an interesting thing that happens, is that as we try to, to listen to God sometimes, it can make people uncomfortable with it, but it doesn't mean that Moses is like, well, then I'm not going to hang out with God anymore. He simply finds a way to kind of manage by veiling that glory so that the people aren't too overwhelmed by it. But and, and these are the people who have just been freed by God. These aren't some non-believing other tribe of Jebusites or Canaanites or whatever. This is the Israelites themselves who are like, oh, wow, you're a little bit too much. And it's, it's just kind of an interesting thing of like how as Moses kind of gets close to God, there's kind of this distance that kind of gets put in between him and the Israelites. Yeah. And so we end, we, we kind of, the last section here is the setting of Sabbath regulations but then the more important part is the building the building of the tabernacle. And so we, we hear about the artists that are responsible for that. We know them by name. And this is one of the texts that actually, when I was kind of working my way through some different studies in college and whatnot, it was the first time I'd heard the idea that God values craftsmanship, that God here honors and selects and looks for the people who it says here that this one gentleman, Bezazalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, has he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. And he has given them the ability to teach others and has filled them with the skill of all kinds of work as craftsmen, designers, embroiderers, all of these master craftsmen. And it's this idea that creative expression and being skillful is something glorifying to God, and it is a gift from God. And I, as a student, that was really encouraging to me. I had not heard about that in the idea. And I feel like at different points in the life of the church throughout history, that's been honored. And at other times it's been rejected. And so it is something just a little neat tidbit about that. Like if you stick with reading all the way through Exodus and all the stuff, you realize that there's this really big chunk on craftsmanship mm -hmm. <laughs> here about that the tabernacle being made as a, a dwelling place for at least an evidence of God's presence was to be made well. It was to be made beautiful. And um, and that's an encouragement for anybody who is passionate about the arts or, or whatever and may not have heard that that's not something away from God. That's not something that's not a part of God, but that is very much something God treasures, values, and is in, behind. Yeah. And I think that's even just part maybe of the struggle of reading through 
the instructions of the tabernacle is that it's so artistic and there's all kinds of symbolism there, particularly harking back to the idea of the Garden of Eden and this idea that it's God's new dwelling place with humanity, which was what the Garden of Eden was. It was where man and, and God dwelt together to a certain degree. So there's all these images that mean things and there's symbolism and stuff like that. But we as kind of the Western, very intellectual minded church have you know, pragmatism and a more pragmatic approach. And so all this detail and, and artistry, it does get repetitive yeah. because there's basically all the instructions for it. And then it's showing the, how the Israelites obeyed those instructions when in the building of it and the manufacturing of it. So it does get repetitive in that regard. But I wonder if some of the struggle is just, we don't appreciate handmade, like the, what it would take to make something like to make this. something and, and the imagery and the symbolism that behind it. I mean, like our church, I think is somewhat different in that because we have stained glass and there is a, an appreciation mm-hmm. of, of that kind of beauty. But I think even then we can still kind of fall into very pragmatic traps of, you know, well, it's what you, what's used for rather than what it looks like kind of, kind of things. Right. And what its purpose is, meaning that all of this beauty, all of this craftsmanship is not an unto itself. It, it's not an end unto itself, but it's really meant to hark back to the Garden of Eden, remind the people that God intended us to be in this intimate relationship with him and that this tabernacle is, is going to be this point where this covenant that's been made through the descendants of Abraham and God are, are going to be kind of interfacing at this point. And it's going to be this for a, a long season in the life of the nation, the the point at which they will be able to kind of come close and, and have that kind of connection with God that has been missing since the fall that happened in the garden to this point. And it's also going to symbolically show back up again as we go further forward in a lot of the prophetic images, a lot of these things then show back up as ways of seeing and understanding the the overarching story, basically, that God made us. He made us in his image. He made us to be in relationship with him. That relationship was broken. And now we are in this movement through history of finding restoration, redemption, and then restoration of that relationship. And we're at the this point of the covenant being very much tangible to the the people of Israel at this point in Mount Sinai. A lot of the laws, just to kind of recap, that are in Exodus are talking about how the people are supposed to live, and it's supposed to shape their social, their economic, and their worship life together, and that by living this way— they will, Israel will be a nation of justice and generosity that should reflect God's own character, that they are going to look distinctive and behave distinctively from surrounding cultures so that people will look at them and see them pointing at the God that they serve, which is a very distinctive God compared to other regional gods that are out there. Mm-hmm. And so with all that, the chapter kind of ends, you know, with the, the tabernacle is now built, it's put together and it's set up for the first time. God's presence descends on the tabernacle and then Moses is getting ready to go in, but he's not able to. And so that's just kind of where it ends. It kind of ends with this story of, of kind of, you know, that defies our expectations. You know, we've seen Moses just, you know, right before the tabernacle is getting put together and everything, having this close relationship, this closest relationship out of anybody to God. And yet he is unable to enter into the tabernacle. And so that's kind of where we leave Exodus. And then it will set us up for, for Leviticus. And that gets us as we continue to move through the Old Testament and continuing to sort of track this story of 
the promise that God made to the people of Abraham and what that continues to look like as they work it out in time with real people and real problems and real places. Yeah. And I think the second half of Exodus, I mean, like two big ideas that I think are, are least important to me are this idea that God is seeking a relationship with his people. You know, he, he's trying to get them to agree to be in relationship with him. He's setting up this kind of formal relationship. So just that so they know kind of the terms of, of what God is seeking in that relationship. But yet we kind of see people falling short of that relationship over and over again, but God still kind of wanting to maintain and seek after that relationship. And then with the tabernacle, this idea that God doesn't just want a relationship. He wants to be in the midst of our of our lives, of, of kind of the daily life of Israel. And, and he's wanting to be in the midst of that. And so like these two things that he wants a relationship and it's not just a distant relationship, like just do what you do, what I want now, you know, put blessings on you. But this idea yeah. that it's a close relationship that he's wanting to be in the midst of his people. And so I think that those are two things, because I think that's still what God wants for us today, that, that we can kind of look and say, oh, God is wanting a relationship with us. He wants to be in the midst of our lives. And that's something that kind of transfers. It's very different than a tabernacle and formalized covenant kind of thing, but it's, it's still Well, real. and what's intriguing to me is, is that sort of as we think about this kind of coming out of the Exodus, like we've kind of completed sort of this walk, this, you know, brief overview of Exodus, I, I often have heard people say things like, well, if I was being led by a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke, like I would, if I saw God part the Red Sea, I, how would I wouldn't doubt. And I think one of the greatest truth lessons in Exodus is that God can free you from slavery, bring plagues and take away plagues, part the Red Sea, close it back over those who are chasing you, put a pillar of fire in front of you, put bread on the ground in the morning and quail in your pot at night. And yet, and then, and make himself present in a, in a cloud of smoke and fire and lightning covering a mountain. And that does not guarantee that we as human beings that, that that will be enough for us, that we just struggle tremendously and that miraculous signs are not where it's at. And it's intriguing that Jesus himself says that the people keep demanding miraculous signs from Christ. And Jesus says, no, <laughs> because, you know, they, they weren't enough then and they won't be enough now. You, this is where faith comes in. You you believe I am who I say I am or you don't. But no, I don't perform. You know, I'm not a dog and pony show. I'm not jumping through hoops for you because it won't help you. I think out of his wisdom and his love for us, because he knows it won't help us in the end. Because even though those miracles are awesome, and I've seen some amazing things in my life, and I've seen some truly miraculous things in my life, that's not what I believe in. What I believe in is the relationship that I have with God and this idea that he does want to be with us. So yeah. I think those are really good takeaways for us that Exodus isn't just a story of stuff that happened a long time ago. That Exodus still matters to us as the people of God. Yeah. Not that there aren't hard things or messy things in, in Exodus, just like there are in some of the other Old Testament books in particular, but and even some of the New Testament books. But it's it's still this idea that God is seeking after relationship and it's just kind of a messy Messy, messy experience because we are often the, the cause of that mess. Um, so, yeah, so that's the book of Exodus. Next week, we will be into the book of Leviticus, and we hope that you found this helpful. All right.